Hey everyone, and welcome to Between the Creations. My name is Laurian Hook, and each week on the podcast, I and my guest discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, and the Bible. I'm so glad you've decided to join us. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you with us for this week's episode of Between the Creations. It's just always exciting to put out a new episode, so thanks for listening. Uh, Kind of continuing with what I did a few weeks ago, I am doing a solo episode this week on the topic of continuing kind of processing how we can become better Bible readers and kind of better learners of the biblical text, understanding some different aspects of the Bible and understanding it as literature, understanding different writing styles and genres that are within it. Um, All of that actually being really important for us being um, people who want to kind of let our lives be formed by the truth in the in the big narrative and the story that we find in the scriptures. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I think we're probably going to do a few more of these over the summer, just as we uh, kind of have a little bit of a, a different uh, pace over the summer. But today, I want to talk about the different types of literature uh, that we find in the Bible. So different types of literary genres, uh, different types of writing styles, because this is helpful information to have because you can't read the book of Exodus the same way that you read the book of Psalms. And you can't read Psalms the same way you read the book of, say, uh, Mark or John, one of the one of the Gospels. Uh, you have to read these things understanding the kind of literature that they are and understanding the kind of, of genre that they fall into. And that will open up so many um, new worlds. It'll unlock different aspects of the text that maybe we would have missed if we're trying to read something inappropriately. I often use the illustration of, of something along the lines of you you don't pick up um, the latest, you know, paperback novel in the airport and read it the same way that you would say Shakespeare or um, poetry. You don't read poetry, uh, you know, fr- the same way that you're going to read a, a fictional a crime novel or the way that you would read a, a biography or something like that. We understand this with our modern literature and with different kind of genres. When you go into a bookstore, you kind of know, I don't read, uh, I don't go over and look at the cookbooks and read those the same way that I do um, historical biographies, and etc. And so the same is true for how we approach the text of the Bible and what that means. Because if we aren't reading something correctly or with kind of the correct lenses on, um, we might be prone to misinterpret it or we might be prone to actually just miss something that's there um, that we just didn't realize was there. Um, so there are a lot of different ways of talking about the types of literature and the genres uh, of those in, in the Bible, depending on if, if, I mean, do a cursory Google search and you're going to come up with multiple articles saying there's five different types of literature or there's 15 different types of literature or there's, uh, you know, crazy amounts of them. Um, but for the purpose of, of this, um, I want to talk about eight specific types of literature in the Bible. And and some of those have kind of subgenres. Some of those have um, different bullet points underneath them that we're not going to go super into. This is more of kind of a overview or a review for those of you who might be more familiar with this. Um, the first the first of the eight is, is history. So these are like the historical books. So if you think with me, think um, Old Testament for the most part. You're, we're talking like Joshua, Judges, um, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, um, Nehemiah, those, those types of books that 
are purely historical. They're giving you a history of Israel. They're giving you a history of things like um, parts of the different kings that, that kind of come and go, both in the northern and the southern kingdoms. Um, they're giving you a little bit of history of even exile and then in Israel being overtaken. These historical books offer primarily time from like the conquest of Canaan. So think Joshua until the exile. So there's a lot going on. You have the the kings rising and falling. You have the kingdom splitting. You have all of these things happening. And if we're not reading it, understanding that the author is trying to give you a history of Israel to explain why things are the way they are, then again, we might be prone to miss things. Now, something really interesting to note here, a lot of the books like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles tell the same story uh, in, in a repeat fashion. So you get some of the same information, but the authors of these different books, especially 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, um, they're writing in different time periods than from each other. So the time has passed. And so they're writing with a different perspective. And I talked about this in the last episode I did solo, where it's okay for us to admit that the biblical writers had agendas. They had a purpose for which they were writing. Uh, Do we believe that the Holy Spirit was present in that? Yes. But do we also believe that there's definitely and absolutely a human element to the scriptures? Yes. Or at least I do. Maybe, maybe you don't. um, And that's okay. Uh, but the writers had agendas. They're putting down this history for a reason. So when you read some of the stories from First and Second Kings, and then you read the exact same story in First and Second Chronicles, the information doesn't always match up. Um, again, they're writing from different perspectives. They're writing in different time periods. But they, these authors are all in the, these historical books trying to give you a history, an explanation of why things are the way they are. And remember, much like with our our you know history books that we read. Today, Today, um, usually the winner writes the history. Um, if you if you have a battle and you're the winner, you get to kind of tell the tale. Now this isn't always true um, in the Old Testament because um, most of you who are you know good Old Testament readers, you know that Israel has a really rough go of it in the Old Testament, and they don't win all the battles, and they get sent into exile and all of those things. But then, um, from those kind of perspectives, the writers uh, during the times of exile who are writing down history of that are writing with that in mind. They're writing from that lens. So again, there's an agenda, there's a purpose, there's a reason for them putting down this history. And if we come to say the book of Joshua or Judges and we try to read it without the context of what's happening around that time, without kind of knowing who the main players are, uh, especially if you're reading something that appears twice in the Bible, a story that gets repeated, if you're not going to, we need to look at those next to each other and say, what's different about these two? Why would the authors record things differently in these different time periods about the same story? Those types of questions are things that we need to ask, especially when we approach historical books. Again, most of these are in the Old, these are Old Testament books, um, writing in recording the history of Israel. Um, but we need to kind of keep that in the backs of our back of our minds as we process through this. Also, another thing to remember is that a lot of the stories in the Bible um, are more descriptive than prescriptive. And what I mean by that is they are describing something that happened. They're not prescribing that you should then go do likewise. <laughs> um, there, there are things that we definitely are like, yeah, Christians should not do this. They should not act this way. Um, they shouldn't. We, we're called to things like nonviolence and enemy love. Um, so when we read things in the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament, where people are not acting in that way, we need to reframe it through the 
the lens of Jesus, right? We need to reframe it through the lens of the Gospels. Um, and sometimes that's really important with the historical books. Um, a lot of this is kind of saying, hey, this happened. Um, you don't emulate this. Don't, don't follow in these people's footsteps. And the history books are really, really um, kind of a good place for us to remember that. Um, moving along to our second of the eight kind of genres or or types of literature in the Bible. And again, different people are going to vary on how they want to divide these out. But for the intense for, for the intents and purposes of, of the podcast, the second one, let's say, is is the law texts. Um, now you have books in this. Obviously, you know, most of us are gonna think off the top of our heads, like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, Numbers falls into this some. The book of Exodus also falls into this. Now, Exodus is one of those weird books that you have to be really astute when you read because it moves between multiple types of genres and literature. For example, in Exodus, you have biblical narrative, you have some history, you have poetry. Think think with me of Exodus 15, where you get the Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam after Pharaoh's armies are, are destroyed in the Red Sea. And you also have law being given, and you have these kind of ratification of the covenants and all those things. So Exodus is one of those books that we have to be really astute when we approach um, and read it differently as we move through those different types of genres that that one book contains. Um, but the law texts are not just a bunch of rules. They're not just a bunch of um, kind of do this, don't do this. The Jews had, the, the people of Israel and then the Jews had a much wider understanding of what this law or the Torah um, was what it was purpose was um, it was representative of God's plan for his creation it was representative of God's plan for them as a society and so it was like hey this is how I want you to set up your daily life this is how I want you to set up your 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 systems of government basically this is how I want you to set up the sacrificial system it was not necessarily in their ears just do this don't do this it was hey I'm giving you a system that is ultimately built and and bent towards your flourishing if you will follow it. So the laws aren't like a bad, oppressive thing. The laws are actually really freeing. Um, the laws are a gift that say, hey, here's here's how I want you to set up your society um, because I actually know, um, God speaking, I actually know um, how you best flourish and what's going to be best for you. So sometimes we have a problem. Read, let's be honest, like Leviticus and Numbers are not super fun to read um, for us. It's it's kind of a little bit annoying sometimes. But think about how um, the Jews, even in Jesus, like they knew their Torah. They knew their those first five books. They knew them like the back of their hand. And so it meant a lot to them because, again, it's God's revelation of God's plan. Uh, so maybe that's a better way for us to think of the law and maybe something that kind of can open our eyes. Um, but we just need to be aware that it's it's more, it's not just do's and don'ts. It's more, hey, this is God's plan for how to flourish. Um, this is God's plan for how to set up a society in Old Testament times um, the way that God wants a society to run. Uh, let's take a look at the third uh, type of literature we're going to talk about today, and that is poetry. Now, Man, this takes up a big hunk of the scriptures, and it's not just um, books like the Psalms. It's it's obviously the Psalms are, are poetry. They're they're songs. There's those types of things, um, but it's also found in other places. We have little bits of poetry even in places like Matthew seven, um, where Jesus, where, where they're talking, and Jesus says, "Hey, don't don't give to to the dogs what is sacred. Don't throw away, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. Things will trample under feet. Those types of things. That is set in a 
poetry-like setting. Jesus also quotes a lot of Old Testament poetry from the Psalms. Uh, If you read the Gospels, it's all over the place. Now, even within poetry, this is one of the ones that has multiple kind of sub-genres that we're not going to really get into, Um, but it's, it's important to realize, hey, I'm reading poetry, uh, it's it's poetry. It's not narrative. It's not a historical, factual piece of information necessarily. It's it's a song. It's a poem. It's someone kind of in uh, flourished, uh, kind of embellished language pouring out their heart. Now, the poetry of the Psalms is should be widely, wildly rather encouraging to us. I did an episode on this um, several several weeks ago with David Taylor. If you haven't listened to that, go check it out about the Psalms and how the Psalms kind of reveal to us in this really beautiful way that it's okay to be honest and raw before God. The the Psalms uh, are very, very, um, uh, they have a lot of anger against God displayed in them. They have a lot of hope in God's plan. Um, They have a lot of questioning of God. So it's okay. The Psalms demonstrate to us through their poetry, hey, God can take your questions. God can even take when you're angry, when you're frustrated, those types of things. Um, but poetry, again, has a lot of subgenres, and I would encourage you to go go do a little bit more of a deeper dive. Maybe I'll do another episode on this on how to read, especially Hebrew poetry, um, because it's really fascinating because there's different structures that the poems take on. There's different ways that the author uses language that if you don't know to look for it, sometimes it can be a little bit um, hard to see. But once you know kind of the clues to unlock it, it is crazy how much these things will jump off the page and make your reading of things like the Psalms, even more impactful, I think. I think it's super powerful when we actually understand the structure of the original text that we're reading. Um, it can be really, really helpful. Okay, the fourth the fourth thing is prophecy. Now, again, this takes up a massive amount of text, especially in the Old Testament. Um, parts uh, you think think of books like Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those types of things. Um, big, big, long books of the Old Testament. Um, prophecy, where you have these prophets that that God is raising up to speak to the people, and they sometimes use really weird language. Think about with me, you you have Ezekiel, who is seeing this valley of dry bones, and he's clearly having this vision, right? And so he's using this, this language, trying to explain the vision that's happening to him. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, which Isaiah 6 uh, falls within a prophetic book, but it's almost like a mini form of an apocalyptic uh, style of writing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's just this crazy, weird story that these that these prophets are trying to understand and put together and have make sense. Um, but biblical prophecy is is really really interesting to read. Um, one of the big things that we need to keep in the back of our minds when we approach these prophetic texts is. Who is the audience that's supposed to be receiving these originally? Like, what is their context? What is going on in Israel? Why is um, Isaiah? Why are Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel um, using their outside loud voice um, uh, on the people of Israel? What is going on that is causing these prophets to have to be uh, to have to rise up? Um, and of course, most of you are astute Old Testament readers, and you know that it's it's Israel's uh, forsaking of of the covenant. It's Israel's rebellion against God and the split of the kingdoms and you have exile and Babylon and 
Persia, Greece, and Rome, and all those eventually come in, right? But all of these prophetic texts are are the prophets speaking truth to what they see in front of them that's happening, and then saying, hey, because of this, this is what's going to happen. They kind of foretell um, some different aspects of what's happening, or what will happen, rather, to the people. Um, and there's also hope in the prophets. I mean, especially in, in books like Isaiah, you have the beautiful um, text where, where Isaiah is told to speak comfort to the people of Israel. Um, but it's important that we keep in mind who the original audience was, who was going to receive these prophecies. Now, that's an important thing to keep in mind when we approach the Bible in general is who was the original audience. But with prophecy, it's especially helpful um, to just kind of remember how we can approach this text. Some people like to approach prophecy um, a little bit like people are, are inclined to approach apocalyptic literature um, as some type of thing that we need to have a code to crack. And it, that's just not the case. That's just that's just not how we should be approaching these texts. Um, they were written for a purpose. The prophet spoke for a purpose. Um, and it's not something that's like this mystery that we need to solve. Um, the other and another moving moving on to number five is wisdom literature. Now we don't talk. These are this is probably the most neglected of the of the eight categories is wisdom literature because if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> um, these are books like Ecclesiastes and um, even Job. The book of Job falls under this and Proverbs, um, where it's dealing with kind of practical life things, you know, friendship and parenting and anger and what do you do if people are lazy and what do you do if people are drunk and have, you know, pride or people are speaking incorrectly and, and using their words in really terrible, painful, hurtful ways, stuff like that. Um, so they're really practical uh, books in a lot of ways, but we don't really know how to treat them. Ecclesiastes, if you read it um, kind of surface level, it comes across incredibly depressing. I mean, the whole like vanity of vanities, life is pointless. I've I've searched near and far and I've, you know, drank and eat everything I possibly can and nothing is satisfied. Like that's literally what Ecclesiastes feels like. Um, and so a lot of us don't really know what to do with these books. Um but the real, the, the, I think the beauty of some of these is they're so practical. Uh, I mean, you go read Proverbs and you're like, yeah, I see myself both on the good side of these things and on the bad side of these things. And it's kind of calling me to some action. It's kind of giving me a, a few maybe things I can, I can work on. Um, the interesting thing that, that I usually try to, um, you know, remind people about is, is I say, hey, the proverbs are proverbs. They're not promises. And that's hard for us to understand um, because we want to read the Bible as, as this almost, um, we want to read proverbs as like guarantees. In uh, the one that I, that I talk to a lot of people about um, that I'm, I'm always very sensitive when I talk about is, is the proverb you know, that, that we love to quote that in one translation says, you know, train up a child in the way that, that he should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from, from your teaching. And I sit across from parents of, you know, adult children or even younger children who were raised in the faith, who were raised in Christian homes, um, who have left the faith, who were like, I don't buy into this. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm going to live my my life basically completely against all of this. And the parents are like, what did we do wrong? Um, and that's incredible. I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine how incredibly 
painful and confusing and difficult walking through something like that would be. Um, but, uh, you know, and then, and we want to quote Proverbs, but it's, it's a proverb, not a promise. And that again comes back to understanding this type of literature. Um, it's not, Hey, guaranteed if you do this, God will do this. It says, Hey, here's the best way to live. Um, and I think we could all read the Proverbs and be like, yep, that's that's actually the best way to live. Like, that's wisdom literature. That's giving me some some good information and some good wisdom for how to live my life. Um, but I think in the back of our minds, we also need to remember, um, this, is, this is not a promise, it's a proverb. Um, it's wisdom literature. It's giving us some good tools for how to best live in this world. Um, okay, number six. Number six, again, I'm reminding y'all, people you know, kind of divide these up differently for the purposes of this episode, kind of keeping things a little bit short. I'm kind of, I'm combining the gospels and acts. Um, I, I honestly think the gospels kind of stand alone as their own literature and acts is more historical, um, which, you know, we can, we can talk about that later, but specifically let's talk about the gospels. The gospels are interesting because you guys are smart. You know, this, they are four accounts of the same, the same general story, right? From four different authors, um, written at multiple different times, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, scholars mostly think that Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke uh, based a lot of their text on on Mark's gospel, and then John uh, came a whole lot later and, and was written a little more more separately. Um, that's kind of a really simplified way of explaining that whole that whole issue. Um, but they're all very different. And again, um, coming back to this idea of the gospel writers had agendas. They had intended audiences. They had a purpose for putting down what they put down and the way they put it down and the order they put it down in. Um, if you read Mark, uh, you get some really strong undertones of how Mark is, through his telling of the story of Jesus, how he's kind of um, poking fun at the at Rome and saying, hey, you guys want to use all this language, but I'm going to take it back and apply it to our Messiah, who, by the way, is not Caesar, um, and things like that, that, that we miss if we read the Gospels as some other type of literature. Matthew has very strong... Um, Jewish and Hebrew overtones and pulls a lot from the Old Testament and has his beautiful genealogy at the beginning. Um, Luke likewise does does his own um, purposeful con- construction of his gospel, all for different purposes. They all are telling the same story. They're all telling it truthfully from their perspective, um, but we get different perspectives when we read them, which is really, really beautiful. Um, the reason I feel comfortable connecting the gospels and acts is because Luke is is literally Acts part one, and then the book of Acts is Acts part two. Um, Luke even Luke is the author of both of them, and it's just we've broken them up into two different books, and and happened to put John right smack dab in between them for some reason. Um, but Luke and Acts are are just basically one long book put together where we talk about hey, this is who Jesus was, this is what Jesus did, and this is how people responded. I um, mean, it's really cool. Let me encourage you: read Luke and Acts back to back, just straight through. Just sit down and over the course of a few days. Read straight through Luke and straight through Acts, and you'll see the story unfold in front of you. A lot of it's narrative. Um, again, remembering that sometimes in the Gospels we see poetry. Sometimes in the Gospels we see narrative. We see um, kind of pastoral discourse. For example, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus talking to people. It's not narrative necessarily. It's not a story being told. It's Jesus literally giving a sermon, basically. 
Um, so again, keeping in mind, hey, I need to pay attention to these narrative shifts. I need to be aware of them. A good commentary can help you do this um, if you're not super, super familiar with how that works. Um, the seventh kind of uh, option, or option, um, the seventh genre rather, that I'm going to talk about is letters. So this is this is basically the rest of the New Testament. This is you know First um, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, the Book of Romans, uh, Thessalonians, Timothy, T- Hebrews, First and Second Peter, tied all of those books. Um, the epistles, uh, sometimes people call them the letters, um, and and there are some really great clues to helping us understand the letters better. One, um, who is the audience of the letter? Who who is the intended audience of the letter? Um, is there a problem happening in this community that's addressed in the letter? Um, what's the tone of the letter? Is the author frustrated? Is the author encouraging, excited, happy, sad? Um, you know, and a lot and letters follow the same kind of um, form for the most part. They have they open with this kind of greeting. They open with the purpose of the letter. They open with sometimes a blessing or a prayer, um, something you know, a thanksgiving. Then they move to kind of like the meat of the letter. Then they have kind of the salutation, farewell you know, science seal delivered part. Um, and so that's something that can kind of clue us in, Hey, I'm reading a letter. This, this, this kind of, um, shows me, shows me some things. Um, this is kind of a Bible nerd side note in this. I hope this doesn't rock your world too much. Most of you, many of you, I'm sure know this or have heard this. And if you haven't, that's totally fine. It's not a bad thing. Um, but a lot of us think that Paul, um, with the exception of like maybe Hebrews and like first and second Peter, um, wrote all of these letters because they say, you know, Paul is writing them. Um, the authorship of a lot of the letters, especially um, ones like 1 and 2 Timothy, Ephesians, I, I believe Titus as well, um, is hot, is widely disputed. Um, not saying it shouldn't be in the Bible, not saying that it shouldn't be considered authoritative or helpful or, or instructive for us, um, but a lot of people don't think Paul wrote them. Um, it was very common back then for people to use pseudonyms and for people to assume um, an authoritative figure and write um, under that, that authoritative figure's name. Um, but just kind of FYI, if you want to do more research into that, you can. Just kind of interesting to know um, that that scholars are widely, widely divided on that, and there are Bible-believing, you know, wonderful, delightful Christian people who are loyal to King Jesus who fall on both sides of that. So don't feel like you know we need to freak out or anything. Just I'm mentioning it because it's it's there and it's something for us to consider. Um, okay, we've come to the eighth and final one, and that is apocalyptic literature. Again, I'm realizing that some some minor aspects have been left out, but apocalyptic literature um, shows up in a few places in the Old Testament, um, parts parts of Daniel, for example, parts of Ezekiel, um, things like that. Um, like I said earlier, Isaiah 6, the first part of it is a mini apocalypse. It's a mini kind of uncovering or revealing of, of God and, and how things are in the world. Um, the book of Revelation is one long apocalypse. Um, something really, really important for us to know right off the bat here is that the word apocalypse uh, when we're talking about biblical literature, the word apocalypse does not, it does not, 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 please hear me when I say this, it does not mean the cataclysmic ending of everything. That is not what apocalypse means. In the Greek, it means to uncover or reveal. Um, that's that's really the, the, the gist that we get when people, uh, so the first word of the book of Revelation is actually 
the Greek word for apocalypse. It's an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, a, reve- a, re- a revelation, a revealing of Jesus Christ um, to, to John and to the churches. Um, so re- just think, keep that in the back of your mind that apocalypse does not mean the ending of all things and the destruction of something. Instead, it means like the revealing of something, the uncovering of something. And what's really being uncovered and revealed in a lot of these biblical um, apocalypses, this apocalyptic literature, is um, the truth about how the world really is. That's usually what's being unveiled. We see this a lot in Revelation. Daniel, Ezekiel gets aspects of this as well. We see evil for what it really is. We see God for who God really is um, because God has pulled back the curtain and has revealed, has apocalypsed God's self to us. And so you, we have to remember when we read apocalyptic literature, there are strange, strange images. It is dream literature. It's vision literature. It's not narrative in the way that like the gospels are in a lot of ways. It's not even um, literal in a lot of places. Um, the, the writers are using these kind of big, grandiose uh, pictures and images to kind of try to capture something that they don't really have words for. Um, so when we read the apocalyptic portions of the Bible, it's important for us to remember this is not literal in the sense that, hey, in Revelation 5, when John turns and sees the lamb, Jesus actually isn't a lamb. Like, none of us think that. None of us think that Jesus is physically actually in the shape and form of a lamb. John is using this beautiful literature, this beautiful way of talking about something to kind of create a word picture for us. I tell people all the time, the reason we're so confused sometimes when we read books like Revelation is because we're basically reading, in some ways, um, a political cartoon from 2,000 years ago. So think think with me for a second. If if you were to take uh, the cartoon from, from a recent New Yorker and you were to put it in a time capsule with very little kind of expl- explanation around it, just put the, put the cartoon in a time capsule and wait, you know, 2,200 years or so, for someone to just find it and you haven't really given them a whole lot of context just with with, with the um, piece of paper itself and it had like a donkey and an elephant on it, they would have no clue what you were talking about. They'd be like, why are these people obsessed with elephants and donkeys? Well, when we read Revelation and we see beasts and we see dragons, the original audience, like this was not difficult for them. They were like, oh, I, I can track with you on this. But we read it and we're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy and the world is ending. That's not at all what's happening. Um, it is a, it is a cosmic depiction of how things actually are, um, using these grandiose words and images for things like evil, um, for things like the presence of God. Um, so anyways, good to remember that when we approach that type of literature, um, I hope this was helpful. Maybe you knew everything that I just said. And if so, kudos to you. Um, maybe you learned a little piece of something. I hope, I hope that's the case, or maybe it was just a good kind of refresher for you. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to kind of do a few more of these kind of one-off little, you know, walking through the Bible episodes. Again, I hope it was helpful. Thanks so much for listening this week. Um, I'm always blessed to know that you guys are out there listening. I know we've actually been growing in in some different countries, and so that's always exciting to see. Um, But I really, really always appreciate you listening. Uh, Have a great week, and we will be back later. joining me this week. It's a huge help when you like, rate, and subscribe to Between the Creations wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook for news about upcoming episodes. You can find out more about the podcast, submit topics you'd like me to cover on an episode, or even ask me to speak at your event at laurianhook.com.